From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She's on a mission to make oil and gas development safer in Colorado. Erin Martinez lost her husband and brother in a 2017 explosion. It is definitely difficult to see your exploded home on the news every time this comes up. But, you know, this is for the greater good. How she hopes to shape policy at a critical time. Then an accounting of child sexual abuse in Colorado's Catholic Church is out, or at least a partial accounting. What's next? Perspective from Boston on what we might expect from the church, lawmakers, and from victims. The editor of the Boston Globe's Spotlight coverage joins us. Plus, teens under stress are young people addicted to their phones. Today I used my phone for about an average of 8 hours and 34 minutes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Erin Martinez lost her husband and brother in a home explosion in 2017. The blast projected her into the air, and she was burned, had to be medevaced. Her pain and loss became very public, even politicized, when it was clear the culprit was an improperly managed oil and gas well and underground lines near the home in Firestone, Colorado. Well, the federal government Tuesday released its report on the gas explosion. We reached Martinez for reaction and to see how she's doing two and a half years later. Erin, thank you for being with us. Yeah, of course. It's my privilege. Thank you. This report finds that the explosion happened because of natural gas from improperly abandoned lines then owned by Anadarko, lines likely severed during home construction in 2015. Any surprises, though, for you in this report? Definitely no surprises in the report. Everything that's in the report is what we already knew two and a half years ago. Is that disappointing? I'm not so much disappointed on that end. I mean, the facts are the facts. I knew what had happened and the mistakes that were made. My disappointment is on the end that they offer no recommendations in this report for moving forward, for making oil and gas safer. And, you know, they also really left out a lot of stuff that had to do with how the well was maintained and who owned it throughout the years and how that improperly abandoned line was never discovered through inspections of when a well is sold to a new owner, and it changed ownership several times. And one of the things that I'm pushing in the Flowline rulemaking session is that when a well changes ownership, that there is an inspection that needs to be performed before you know, that person can take over ownership. And secondly, this well was shut in in 2015 and reactivated in January of 2017. And again, an inspection or a pressure test wasn't done to put that well back in service. And all of that information has been left out of the report as well. And let's be clear, are you still in the home or on the property where the explosion occurred? No. So that is a vacant lot. And I am working with the town and the HOA in Oak Meadows to turn that into a memorial park um, for my brother and my husband. We're planning on calling it Two Hunters Park, and so we're hoping to be breaking ground on that soon. And explain the name there, Two Hunters Park. (laughs) So my brother Joey, from a very early age, was an avid hunter and an avid fisherman. Just his biggest love was being in the outdoors. And when Mark joined our family, Mark was kind of more of a sports guy, but Uh, My brothers took him under their wing, and they taught him how to hunt, and that became one of their favorite pastimes. 
So we feel like since that's the thing that they did the most together, that's a really fitting name for the park. Talking about your late husband, Mark Martinez, and your brother, Joe Irwin, both 42 when they were killed in the blast. Where are you living now? I actually purchased a new home. (laughs) It's kind of a crazy story as well, but I felt that, you know, living with my parents was obviously the easiest thing to do and the most comfortable thing to do, but I felt like for my children to realize that this was our family unit now, me and them, we kind of had to go out and find a new home and try to gain some stability. Mm. And so we did that, and when we were planning on buying the home, I took my children to see it, and they both really liked it, but my son looked to me and he said, you know, Mom, you need to make sure that something like this doesn't happen to us again, and I really want you to make sure that there's no oil and gas stuff around the house. And, you know, I told him I will do that. And so I went to the COGCC website, and we reached out to the town of Firestone engineers, and we pretty much tried to talk to anyone and everyone that could tell us what was in and around this house. And we were told that there wasn't any oil and gas infrastructure around the home. And about six months after we moved in, Anadarko was in the field behind our house, kind of digging and searching and looking for a plugged-in abandoned well, and they just kept getting closer and closer and closer to our property until they actually located in the property line that I share with the neighbors. And so, I mean, you can only imagine how that feels to find out that there's a well now right almost in your backyard. Obviously, I really lost a lot of my children's trust, and we are currently in the process of moving to a new home. Oh, my The state has taken a lot of action since April 2017 to prevent a similar explosion, immediately calling for the inspection of hundreds of wells near homes, changed how the underground lines linked to the explosion are created, tested, abandoned. Uh, Now the state adopting a public mapping requirement and making health and safety higher priorities for state regulators. It's quite clear that you don't think this NTSB report makes much of a difference is your hope now in the new rules that the state is crafting. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think immediately after the explosion occurred, you know, they just basically scratched the surface on trying to make things safer for all of us around oil and gas. All they really did was, you know, they ordered all the operators to go out and check their lines and make sure they weren't leaking. And they found hundreds of them that were actually leaking, and nothing really was done much after that. Um, 181 was passed in March. um, This is the bill uh, behind the new regulations. Yeah, that really opened the door. You know, currently they're working on the flow line rules, and I've really tried to take an active role in that. This is something that, you know, we're going to have to work on for a long time, and definitely, you know, this is a step in the right direction. Let me just say that uh, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, which has uh, authority here, is moving forward with action now against the company that owns the well in question linked to the explosion. That's Anadarko Petroleum. What do you think is appropriate action from the state? A fine? Something else? You know, this is a touchy topic with, you know, my own kids. You know, when the Um, tragedy occurred, both of my children looked at me and they said, you know, how come no one's in jail because of this mom? And, you know, I really tried to explain to them that really all that can be done here is that fines can be issued 
and that we really need to try hard to try to change things so that something like this doesn't happen again. Obviously, I would love to see that further action could be taken, but I really believe that that is all that they are really have the authority to do is to issue fines and you know, hold them accountable for the mistakes that they made. Speaking of mistakes, I think of the local government here. So on the probable cause of this incident, the report finds that the approval by local authorities to allow homes to be built on land adjacent to or previously part of oil and gas production fields without full documentation of that, you know, area of the lines, that that contributed to the accident. What was your reaction reading that? Like, should Firestone have been more careful? I think definitely all municipalities should be more careful. I think that, you know, we allow um, the oil and gas industry to leave their trash in the ground. And then we just take their word for it that that trash in the ground was properly disposed of. And then we allow these developments to come in and build on top of that trash. And, you know, we need to be doing our due diligence to be making sure that if we are going to build around oil and gas infrastructure, then we need to make sure that what we're building on top of and next to is safe. And I think one of the biggest things that I am pushing for is that the abandoned flow lines be removed from the ground. If those are removed from the ground, then it's pretty difficult for a line to be improperly abandoned and to blow up another home. I think that the explosion in Firestone has become a a lightning rod in the debate over fracking near homes, and it does not seem to be a debate that's letting up. Where do you think we are headed as a state when it comes to oil and gas development, the question of how close is too close Um, I I mean, I I think that the voice coming from the majority of the state is that they understand that oil and gas is a huge part of our economy here in Colorado, but that if they are going to continue to drill in Colorado, that they've got to be held accountable for higher safety standards. There have to be changes that are going to be made to their daily operations that is going to ensure that the public that is in and around these areas, you know, that they're safe. I I actually am glad that the home explosion is being used for that. I think it honors my husband, Mark, and my brother, Joey, that, you know, we're really trying to, as a collective state, we're really trying to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. And I think it's really opened up people's eyes that, hey, maybe all of this stuff that is going on around me, you know, I used to think that the industry was making it safe, and now it's making them ask questions and demanding that things become safer. It's interesting to me that your reaction is not to oppose oil and gas development outright. You know, I have lots of family and friends that work in the industry. My husband himself worked in the industry. My younger brother, up until the day of the accident, worked in the industry. You know, I I have seen what the industry does for families, and it helps take care of those families. And I would never want to advocate to put all of those families out of work and all of those people to lose their jobs. I think if we can find a way for that industry to still be able to employ all of those people and at the same time keep all of us safe, then, you know, that's something that I'm going to advocate for. It's interesting. I can imagine like a climate activist hearing what you've just said there and thinking, my goodness, what what Erin experienced herself and the death of her husband and her brother is painful and tragic. Meanwhile, there is 
you know, the potential for a scale of tragedy in the face of climate change that could cost many other lives as well, and that that should be a part of the discussion. What do, what do you say to that? Um, you know, I think that it is a part of the discussion. I think they're looking at the air quality and, you know, the environmental impacts that go into oil and gas. And, you know, there are rulemaking sessions to look at all of that as well. I don't think that it's something that's being left out. Mm -hmm. I am specifically speaking on the things that impacted me directly, which has to do with the flow lines and the shut-in wells. And, and those are the areas that I feel confident, you know, voicing my opinion on. And yet it must be really hard to have something so personal and so difficult be so public. Like, I, I just wonder how you're doing. I'm curious physically, because I know that you were projected into the air in this explosion, that you suffered serious burns, but I'm also interested in how you're doing mentally. You know, I, I really just try to look at it from two sets of eyes. I look at it from what would Mark and Joey want, and I look at it from what kind of a role model or what kind of message am I sending to my children? And I think that, you know, it would be hugely important to Mark and Joey that I took the necessary steps to make sure that this didn't happen to anyone again. And I think for my children that their father and their uncle didn't die in vain. Yes, it is very public. And yes, it is definitely difficult to see your exploded home on the news every time this comes up or your name in the newspaper. But mm. I think we're trying to look at it for you know, this is for the greater good. Gosh, it never occurred to me that you would turn on the TV or open a newspaper and just see constant images of the house. Do you have memories of the explosion and how do you deal with them? Um, you know, I do. I, you know, I can sit here and completely tell you blow by blow what happened. I remember it all. Uh, my son remembers it all. It's embedded into the minds of everyone, everyone that stood outside and, you know, watched the home go up in flames, knowing there were still two people inside. You know, lots of people in the town saw the Flight for Light helicopter when it airlifted me to the hospital. You know, I think a lot of that is embedded in, into everybody's heads. And, you know, it's definitely something that we wake up with in the morning and we go to sleep with at night. Erin, I want to thank you for your time. Um, yeah, definitely. Erin Martinez survived the 2017 home explosion that killed her husband and brother. In a new report, federal investigators confirm the cause was an improperly managed oil and gas well and associated flow lines. We now have an accounting of child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church in Colorado, at least a partial accounting. So now what? Well, perhaps we can learn from a community that has already been down this path, and naturally Boston comes to mind, where in 2002 the Boston Globe's spotlight investigation revealed widespread abuse and an ensuing cover-up. Walter Robinson led that coverage, which drew national attention to this issue and won the paper a Pulitzer. And Walter, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. So this independent inquiry released last week in Colorado revealed that at least 166 children here in the three dioceses were abused over 70 years. Why don't you remind us what the scale um, was of what you uncovered in Boston? Well, in Boston... Uh 
where the Catholic population in the archdiocese is about 2 million people, uh, in the end, we learned that about 250 priests had abused thousands of children over the same period of, of time. And we started with one priest and quickly discovered that there were a dozen or so. And by the time we began to publish, we already knew that there were over 100 priests. And as was the case here in Colorado, the bishops, the archbishops, and the cardinals had managed to cover it up for decades. And uh, they had never, in the, in the thousands and thousands of pages of documents we got, we never saw the words, let's call 911. Hmm. After the Globe published its first reports, were people quick to realize that this might be a pattern in the church nationally, globally? Or did they think, oh, this is a Boston problem? Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Ryan. In, in 2002 and 2003, my colleagues and I uh, spoke a lot around the country about this issue. And very often the reaction that we got from people is, well, there must be something in the water in Boston that made priests do this. And we'd say, no, no, you don't understand. Um, it happened. It's the same everywhere. And it's just that your bishop and your cardinal is still covering it up. And in fact, as far as I'm concerned, in Colorado, the cover-up continued until last year when uh, the church finally agreed to let uh, an independent entity investigate the scale of the abuse. You do not mince words there. Why do you say the cover-up was that recent in Colorado? Well, I think for most Catholics, in order for them to heal from the, the wounds inflicted here, there needs to be a full accounting by the church. And very often in many dioceses around the country, that has not yet happened. And in some dioceses, I'll give you one example, a pretty glaring one. In Buffalo, New York, last year, the bishop finally admitted that 41 priests had had uh, molested children over the same period of time. And his own administrative assistant became a whistleblower, and she revealed that the real number was 117 priests. So that was a more fuller accounting than what the church was willing to give up. Oh. Colorado's uh, report bears some striking similarities to the situation in Boston and other states that have investigated. I think chiefly is that many of the abusers were already known to the church before they victimized additional children. What else stands out to you from reading the special report in Colorado? Because I, I know you've seen it. Well, I've seen it, I've read it, and it it's eerily similar. And and you pointed out the most, uh, what, what I think people find most repugnant about the church's behavior is that in Colorado, two-thirds of all the victims were victimized after the dioceses knew that the priest was a molester, and which is to say that, that, the, that the church decided that the reputation of the church and of the priests was more important than the welfare of the children. And time and again, uh, the church here and in Boston and everywhere else they moved priests around. 
they persuaded parents when parents found out not to say anything. Uh, they gave priests second chances. They treated this uh, these crimes as sins to be forgiven and not something that needed lifelong treatment. Huh. Uh, this this is uh, they were all reading from the same playbook. Uh, you know, earlier this year, the columnist George Will described the extent of this abuse as the gravest crime in American history. And it's clearly, when you look around the world at what was done in in all of the countries we know about, uh, the pattern was always the same. And it included the actions of uh, people like Pope John Paul II when he was the Archbishop in Krakow, Pope Benedict when he was the Archbishop in Munich, and even Pope Francis, whom everybody in the church looks to as the man they hope can solve this problem, when he was the Archbishop in Buenos Aires in 2002, he issued a statement saying, no priest in this archdiocese has ever abused a child. So you think this is not just a local problem, but that it reaches the highest echelons of the church. I, I want to say that some states like Pennsylvania have done their investigations locally with the power of a grand jury, subpoenas of church documents. In Colorado, the Catholic Church and the attorney general's office reached an agreement to allow for this independent inquiry, and it meant that the AG's office didn't investigate religious orders like the Jesuits and Franciscans, and the churches themselves produced copies of their files to the special investigator, Bob Troyer, and did so in a way that the files are not part of the public record. Uh, Having read the report, do you hunger for more? Oh, definitely. Uh, the, The attorney general's office in the report made it very clear that they essentially did not have the ability to give a full accounting. I think you described it as a partial accounting, and that's correct. Mm-hmm. The files, many of the files were incomplete. Uh, barriers to reporting still exist. Uh, there were significant errors in much of the reporting. Uh, critically, the dioceses, they made the decision which files of dead or retired priests to turn over. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, you may know that we now have a partial accounting of abusive children in the Catholic Church in Colorado. And we're asking what next? What happens after reports, investigations like these are launched and concluded? For perspective, we thought of Boston. Our guest is Walter Robinson, who led the 2002 Boston Globe Spotlight investigation into sexual abuse of minors there. And uh, Walter, you know, the the Colorado Attorney General's office launched its inquiry 16 years after the Boston Globe's first report, 15 years after the Massachusetts Attorney General investigated the Catholic Church there. Why do you think it's taken so long for other states to follow suit? That's a very good question. Um, the, The answer, it's not too complicated. Uh, In most jurisdictions, in most states, uh, the authorities were reluctant and sometimes frightened to essentially take the church on by impaneling a grand jury and demanding the records. I mean, even in Boston in 2002, 
Uh, the attorney general invited the cardinal and the bishops to testify before the grand jury, and they refused, and he had to subpoena them to get them in. And it took an enormous amount of courage back then for an Irish Catholic attorney general in Massachusetts to take that step. And in the intervening years, not much has changed around the country until the attorney general in Pennsylvania decided to do a grand jury. And when he did it, and it revealed that in six dioceses, there were 300 priests who abused children, and he was widely applauded for taking that step. All of a sudden, around the country, prosecutors and attorneys general realized that there was no political downside to taking this on. Hmm. And so we now have uh, over 20 states where prosecutors, in one way or another, are involved in this. I should add here, uh, you mentioned a partial accounting, and the report is very clear uh, that the investigators didn't get everything they wanted, that in states where a grand jury has sat and subpoenaed all the records, the number and the percentage of priests who abuse children is generally a good bit higher than in states where there was a voluntary agreement reached with the church, okay. which is to say when the church decides what to turn over, they are a little bit, shall we say, they set a much higher standard for what constitutes a credible allegation than you or I would? Moving forward, there's obviously the question of what laws might change. I think it will be interesting to watch the next session of the state legislature to see if there is movement there. Uh, also moving forward, there's this compensation program for victims similar to one set up in California, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, compensation in the past has ranged for individual victims from $10,000 to half a million. Uh, in Boston, out-of-court settlements have cost the Catholic Church more than $3 billion. Uh, just briefly, how has the Church coped with these kinds of payouts? Well, in many cases, uh, and Boston came close to this, there have been bankruptcy filings by the dioceses or the archdioceses. I think uh, about 15 uh, dioceses around the country have gone into bankruptcy because of the enormous costs of these settlements. Uh, in most states where there have been movements to uh, change the law to allow victims to seek civil redress all these years later, uh, the church has fought this legislation, uh, uh, in some cases successfully. So uh, one one issue here in Colorado, and I'm not that I'm not familiar with with the statute, but if the legislature were to open up a window for all victims to come forward, the number of victims and surely the number of priests accused would probably go up dramatically. The Bishop of Colorado Springs and the Archbishop of Denver have released videos in response to the report here. Archbishop Samuel Aquila points out that many institutions in this country are reckoning with sexual abuse in their ranks. Just in the last few years, it has become even more apparent that perpetrators infect every organization. The Boy Scouts, public schools, the Olympics, news organizations, colleges, these abuses can manifest in every part of our lives if we are not alert and responsive. We, more than any other organization in this country, 
know we must be vigilant. So I hear two things there. He says we, more than any other organization, must be vigilant. An acknowledgement that the Catholic Church perhaps has a disproportionate role here. But he is saying that this pervades many other aspects of life. What do you make of that? Well, I, I have to say it is true. It is absolutely true. Uh, I'm, I'm happy he threw in news organizations there, uh, but he's talking there about uh, sexual misbehavior uh, by uh, people in positions of power over other adults. Uh, when he's talking about uh, churches, yes, we're talking about children, but there was a time before this blew open where the Catholic Church claimed that only one half of 1% of priests abused children, and that was the same as the Methodists or the Lutherans. In point of fact, in Massachusetts, almost 11% of priests abused children, oh, and anywhere there's been a grand jury, the percentage of priests who abuse children is in the range of 8 to 11%. In places where there has been so-called voluntary disclosure, it, it runs from 2% up to 4%. So uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the church, the Catholic church, its record on this is much, much worse than any other uh, denomination. Walter Robinson joins us. He led the 2002 Boston Globe Spotlight investigation into sexual abuse of minors by priests there. So the, the church has also pointed out that the most recent sexual abuse of a child by clergy in Colorado occurred in 1998. That's, of course, what is recorded in church files. Uh, here's Aquila again. From his investigation, Mr. Troyer identified no diocesan priests in active ministry in the archdiocese with substantiated claims of abuse. The report found no substantiated reports of abuse of minors by diocesan priests in the archdiocese within the past 20 years. Many of you know that nearly 20 years ago, we instituted the strongest child safety measures possible. I have seen in our 350 current priests, 144 deacons, our safe environment staff, and the more than 100,000 formally trained lay Catholics, a commitment to create a culture of safety and reporting. Today, this report offers us evidence that shows our Catholic parishes and schools are as safe as any environment in society. After inquiries like this, after your reporting in Massachusetts and the ensuing investigation by the Attorney General, is it possible to tie this up neatly with a bow and say this is behind us? It's not possible at all. Even in the U.S. Catholic Church, where there has been much greater disclosure and certainly much more comprehensive reforms, there are many dioceses where there hasn't yet been an accounting or even a full accounting. And certainly elsewhere in the world, there are, are many countries where there's been no acknowledgement or virtually no acknowledgement that the problem existed at all, when in fact it was as bad as anywhere that we know uh, of in the U.S. 
So you think this will be a global reckoning, that that will take time. I just want to note that the report in Colorado made several recommendations to prevent child sex abuse by clergy moving forward. Those include engaging an independent investigator to handle allegations, dedicating a victim assistance coordinator to the sole mission of victim care, and the church is committed to implementing all of those recommendations. Walter Robinson, if I could get just a bit personal here, I think you're Catholic, or you consider yourself a lapsed Catholic. I'm a, a long-lapsed a long Catholic. Lapsed. Uh, the church, though, was a big part of your life growing up, and I am curious how these years of reporting on abuse in the church changes the way you see the community that you grew up in. Well, of course, like uh, many uh, Catholics of my age, I'm eligible for Medicare. Uh, We grew up not in the community, but we grew up within our parish. And our values were very much formed by the church. And the priests we looked up to as men who forgave our sins, not as men who committed these kinds of sins. We grew up in a church that we thought existed primarily for the protection of children. And we found out, regrettably, that almost none of that was true. And that the people at the highest levels in the church cared not a whit about the children. And and that's that, that's been a serious reckoning for all Catholics. I, what I find for many Catholics that I know is that their faith remains in God and in their local church and in their pastor, and they understand the failures and the fallibility of the institution. I think we all do that now. And as journalists, I have to say, we learned that uh, from this that our most iconic institutions need the same level of scrutiny as we give to other institutions. Walter Robinson led the 2002 Boston Globe Spotlight investigation into sexual abuse of minors by priests in the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston. He co-wrote Betrayal, Crisis in the Catholic Church. Now he's editor-at-large for the Boston Globe, visiting professor at Arizona State University's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. He joined us from the studios of Central Sound at Arizona PBS. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Three states have signed on to this grand experiment in public health called medical marijuana, something pharmacies can't carry and doctors can't talk to their patients about. So it ends up looking a lot like any other retail business. But here's the rub. There's not a lot of money to be made on medical marijuana anymore. So where does that leave patients who are on the medical marijuana registry? Find out on the season finale of On Something wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Teens spend hours on their phones, which may exacerbate anxiety and depression. As part of our series, Teens Under Stress, CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine talks to two teens about what exactly they're up to when they get lost in their phones. 
Alright, this is kind of awkward, but uh, I'll give it my best shot. Jose pulls out his phone and clicks on screen time. We've asked him and his friend Sean to check out how they use their phones on an average day and record their thoughts. We're just using first names for the boys to respect their privacy. Uh, Today I used my phone for about an an average of 8 hours and 34 minutes. Teens spend an average of 9 hours a day online. And 60% of teens themselves say spending too much time online is a major problem. The phone is a big part of Jose's life. At school, he checks it frequently. A lot of kids do. I use Snapchat, Instagram, and Facebook and Twitter. Literally, I I check around what I have here. I exit, go on here, check what I have on here. Same with Snapchat. And I do that over and over. Jose is lean and striking in stylish black pants and a black t-shirt. On Instagram, he checks for fashion updates. He scrolls through, people skateboarding, brand drops, rappers, a new Nike Day of the Dead shoe. Oh, for a size 10, it's $3,000. That's insane. It's a pretty weird-looking shoe, too. He often checks the news. Sometimes it's depressing. He couldn't believe how little money countries raised for the burning uh, Amazon rainforest. But yeah, I, I guess I used Facebook a lot just because I wasn't feeling today. And by that, I mean, like, I, I didn't feel good today, I guess. So I just pretty much hopped on social media to kind of block every, everything else out. Jose says he's anxious a lot. He doesn't think the phone itself gives him anxiety. But when he doesn't have it, he's anxious, which he says isn't helping him deal with his anxiety. His friend Sean is more wary of the little device. My name's Sean. I'm 17 years old. I'm chilling on my back porch, watching some YouTube. He's one of Jose's friends at Brady High in Jefferson County. Sean is tall and relaxed with curly reddish hair, a backwards baseball cap, and a Metallica shirt. In the past seven days, says I've used my phone for two hours and 20 minutes a day. Sean uses his phone a lot less than Jose, just to Facebook message his girlfriend or go on YouTube after school. Playthroughs especially. That's watching live commentary of someone playing a video game. Right now I've been watching a lot of Jacksepticeye. I know, pretty nerdy, right? Welcome back, hey Irish noises, to Minecraft. Okay, we left off the last episode on a real serious... Well, I know one... I'm more stressed, or when I'm bored is when I tend to watch YouTube quite a bit when I don't have much to do. Oh, there it is! Okay, this is as far as I've gotten. What he does most on his phone, though, is listen to music. This one's something called Anesthesia, Pulling Teeth. For both boys, the phone can distract. But Jose has kind of seen the distraction as a helpful, good thing. Like, as he explains on his audio diary, when he wants to get away from his mood for a minute. I came into school today and I was feeling all right. I was like, I'll catch up on whatever I missed out. But then I just, my mood just changed really quick and I just didn't feel like doing anything anymore. He says the phone's a good way to keep uh, himself happy. Looking at memes helps or listening to music. One of his favorite musicians is Clams Casino. I need music most of the time just because I get really anxious and so I rely on my phone too much. I didn't have a phone for like three months and uh, it was really frustrating and and I I was pretty much anxious the whole time just because I didn't have music to calm me down. As soon as I lost my phone, it felt like I lost connection to the world. I didn't know anything anymore. He says it was a weird feeling. It's just super addicting. Here's Sean. 
Using the phone as an escape worries him. It's almost like having like a cigarette nicotine addiction. It's like really strange. Studies show technology can stimulate the over-release of dopamine, which the brain then wants more of. Yeah, it's great in one way, but in other ways, people just become so attached to it. Like, I'll be walking to school, everybody's just looking down on their phones. He says, you see everybody else doing it, so you do it too. I hate being attached to my phone, and I just like hate how everybody's like so attached to their phone. So like I'll physically break myself away from it. I'm like, okay, well, am I thinking right now? Maybe I'll write it down. Maybe I'll go like play like, my bass guitar or something. Like just get myself away from my phone. He says he can live without it, but I ask him, what is that feeling that makes him think, you know, I need to get away from it? If I like look at the time, and it's like, oh God, it's already four o'clock. I've been on my phone almost all day. I'm starting to get a headache. I should probably do something else. So I'm not just sitting there getting brain dead. Teens are astute. They can feel the phone's addictive nature, but it's hard to pull away. And whose fault is that? Adults are the ones who let them have a phenomenally powerful and addictive tool that gives them access to anything they want, from pornography to ordering food. A lot of kids like Sean feel adults' feeble protestations of phone use to be just that, feeble. Like, they make it so negative. Like, hey, why don't you go out and do something? Why don't we go out and do something? It's just always, get off your phone, get the hell off your phone. It's like, okay, what do you want me to do that instead? Do you got any better ideas? Some adolescent psychologists believe that in some teens and children, the phone has effectively killed the desire or need to develop other passions or hobbies. It now fills those empty spaces. Um, But yeah, that was about everything for today. After keeping track of his screen time for a few days, Jose is starting to see how the phone can be a time suck. Eight hours, mostly looking at photos and memes. I'm definitely going to have to tone it down. Still, Jose doesn't see the phone causing him stress. When he's without it, yes. More than half of teens associate being away from their phones with at least one of these. Loneliness, being upset, or feeling anxious. And yet, says Jose, a lot of young people turn to social media to deal with their problems. A lot of people either go on social media to open up just because they don't really feel like they have people to talk to, or they close themselves out, they isolate themselves and just listen to music and stuff like that. Jose says he respects people who keep their troubles off social media. Sometimes he vents in a post. He hates it when he does that. I just, I just don't like seeing myself as an attention seeker. But I, I just can't help sometimes because I don't, I don't really talk to people, so I don't really have people to talk to. So I just tend to express everything on social media, and it's really toxic. <laughs> he's deleted things he's posted and then jumps off social media for a few days. A brief pause in his fraught relationship with his phone. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. This story is part of our series Teens Under Stress. On Friday, we'll talk with doctors about the health effects of phone use, and we'll look inside the teenage brain. Gentrification in Denver has displaced people, many of them longtime residents, also minorities. That's as old buildings are torn down and new ones spring up. But in Denver's Whittier neighborhood, an old handball court has endured, hosting generations of Latino players. CPR's Vic Vela has the story. Manuel Gonzalez maintains law and order as four shirtless, sweaty men pound a rubber ball against a three-sided wall. Gonzalez is the referee of an intense game of handball. He's 58 years old and grew up in Zacatecas, Mexico, where handball is huge. 
he speaks limited English. Are you good? I'm good. <laughs> he knows that in English. <laughs> With the help of a family member translating, I asked Gonzalez how he got started playing the game. Mis papás tenían un rebote en la casa y ahí nací en un rebote y todo el tiempo ha buscado rebotes. Where he grew up, like in his house, he had a, a handball court similar to this, and he grew up playing right there. And, and Gonzalez says he learned the game from his dad. And for decades, Latino elders here in the Whittier neighborhood in Denver have passed the game on to younger generations playing on an old handball court that's been standing for nearly 50 years. Guys play card games while they wait to play. They bring their kids and spouses, and they sometimes have cookouts and play Norteño songs, music from northern Mexico. Cayetana Guerca is one of the best players here. Uh, you know, there, there are times where they bring players uh, all the way from Mexico, and you can see easily 50 people here watching the game. Handball is similar to racquetball, only instead of a racket, you use your hand to strike the ball. The guys I talked to for this story say some tournaments in Mexico are so big, they build town festivals around them. Miguel Perez lays concrete for a living, and he's been playing the sport since he was a boy. He says handball is popular in large part because you don't have to be rich to play. Like in the villages, they were, the village that we came from, some of these villages are really small, so they don't have that much, that many resources to play other games. So this is the game they... they uh, Easy to play there, you don't need equipment, you just need a handball. But for many who play at this court, located a couple blocks north of Manuel High School, there's some worry that one day it'll go away. The Whittier neighborhood and nearby Five Points have undergone a dramatic transformation in recent years. Gentrification has revitalized much of the community, but the revamp has also been driving longtime residents away. And when new things get built, old things are often torn down. Ray Acevedo has experienced the change. Before it was nothing but, you know, like Mexicans and, um, and African-Americans, you know. Yeah. And now it's, it's turning all these, you know, white people start to take over, mm -hmm. making mm -hmm. these houses pretty nice, you know. And Are you worried that it might, that something like this might go away with all uh, this? Yeah, we're worried. If they close this place, they're going to, you know, they, a lot of people are going to be stressed out, you know. Ismael Villegas is 64. He's lived in the neighborhood for almost as long as the court has been around. He doesn't want to give anyone a reason to close it. The longest we keep the place clean and uh, we keep everything organized, we don't get in trouble with the police or the neighborhood, yeah. Mm -hmm. The handball court is owned by a local Salvation Army, but the players often paint the walls themselves. Ray Acevedo says the guys are willing to spruce up the area if they could get someone to pay for improvements. Put some, um, I don't know, beautiful green grass, maybe a couple of trees here. All kinds of different work, concrete or, or, or whatever it needs to be done, we'll do the work, you know. Leaders at Salvation Army Denver Red Shield, which is across the street from the court, say there's no plans to remove the court, and they speak highly of the players who help to maintain it. Cayetano Guerca says he'll do whatever needs to be done to hold on to a handball court that has a special place in his heart. Some of my friends have been here since uh, almost 30 or more years. So, you know, this is uh, the place that we that we uh, hang out all the time. Yeah. So it's more, became more like a family than friends. La familia, generations deep. I'm Vic Vela, 
CPR News. Tomorrow is Halloween, and if trick-or-treating in the vestiges of this week's storm doesn't sound like fun, perhaps you'd prefer an indoor option. Well, we got a tip that some nursing homes host trick-or-treaters, like Little Sisters of the Poor in Denver. Here's volunteer coordinator Carissa Dahlquist. We are having a trick-or-treat street, so we welcome all the kids in the neighborhood from some local schools or really anywhere to come and trick-or-treat. We'll have a couple games and a photo booth and some things like that, but then we also have the residents come downstairs. Um, They get to pass out the candy and dress up if they want. Seeing a decline in traditional trick-or-treating, Dahlquist says Little Sisters seize the opportunity to bring kids and elders together to the benefit of both. So we decided that the best way to give our residents that same joy is to bring the kids to them. And it also gives the opportunity for kiddos to be able to interact with elderly, of which a lot of youth and the younger generations don't get a lot of interactions with the elderly. In past years, their trick-or-treat street has been a hit with residents. Of the nursing home residents that we have in the home last year, every single one of them participated in the trick-or-treat, which is Basically, the only time of year I think we get that kind of outcome. Temperatures are expected to be right around freezing Halloween night in Denver. So if you hope to come in from the cold, probably best to call a nursing home before you show up. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank you.